All right. <clears throat> I have an announcement to all of our listeners. We actually have all three of us on these last two episodes. Well, actually, <laughs> it's episode number seven, episode number 10. This has been a crazy year, crazy recording. I apologize for sounding like I'm a 20-year smoker, but I have a cold. But we are getting done. It is the 29th of October. These are dropping Halloween no matter what. So um, go ahead and let's start with introductions. Uh, first of all, uh, my sister. And now before she gets started, though, you have to give her time to finish what she sang. Okay. See, you shouldn't have said that because I would have liked to see what mom was going to say. <laughs> I have something to say. Your words, the whole half, you know, you know, be smart, all of that, I got right three times perfectly. No, she didn't, because the last time you said be safe first. Oh, yeah, but then I did it right. Anyway, go ahead, Elena, and introduce yourself. <clears throat> I am Elena, and uh, I'm the favorite sister. <gasps> I, where's that at? Like, I mean, well, I, you are my favorite sister. Yes. But mom yes. was like, what? <laughs> I wasn't I done. Another sister, perhaps? <laughs> and, uh, of course, we have mom with us, if you want to say hello. Hello. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, the thing about mom is she let us know before we went live that people sleep less in February. Did you know that? It's a shorter month. <laughs> I had a good one yesterday. Listen to this one. Mom who told us that the only murderer that gets enough fiber is a serial killer. <laughs> anyway, Elena okay. doesn't find that as funny. Whatever. Okay, so my name is Sherry. This is Outline of a Murder. Super excited for us to finish the, the two cases that we're recording. We had to do them out of order just because of different circumstances. But this is the Jennifer Doulis uh, case. And are you guys familiar with that case? Okay. No. What's interesting is the man, Fotis Doulis, is actually from Greece. And we were recently there. And um, I didn't know that or I didn't remember that he was originally from Greece. But I do remember him being interviewed on, I believe it was a Dateline or a 2020. It might have been a 2020 on the disappearance of his wife, Jennifer Dulos. And, you know, as usual, I'm watching body language. I'm watching facial expressions. And as I'm watching it and some of the things that he was saying, it just didn't add up. And I felt that he was probably guilty of her murder come to find out there's lots of evidence that points to his guilt. And we'll get to where he is today and what's happening. Um, you know, I, I don't think I would be a very good cop because I would probably be one of those that would instantly be like the husband did it, you know. And, you know, sometimes it is the husband, majority of the time it is. It didn't take police long at all to uh, focus in on, on him. But the other thing that goes along with our season, you know, objectives as well, obviously we'll pick up red flags, et cetera, is the fact that there was no physical violence or abuse. Why, why are y'all smiling? What's? I don't know. She's, she's 
like straightening my runner. Oh, so did you hear what I said? Yeah. Yes. No, I'm talking to mom. I mean, are you paying attention here? I'm paying attention. Okay. You know, I still remember this case now that you mentioned his name and her name. Yeah. And there wasn't any violence as far as physical violence in the marriage before she died. And again, like we discussed in the uh, cases we recorded yesterday, that is very common. And it's still a surprising uh, characteristic of the cases we do, because I figured anytime the wife or the husband would end up dead, that it was, you know, it was like a culmination of, you know, physical violence, but a lot of it was not. A lot of it was um, the gaslighting, the going way too fast in the, the you know, relationship, etc. And before we get into who the characters are, the, you know, characters, I want to give a shout out to um, Peggy. So Peggy is one of our listeners, and she also researched this case for us. And she's working on the, uh, I think the John Bonet, or she's working on the Darley Rudier case that we'll do in February for the mini series. So super excited about that. Thank you. Didn't she suggest a case? She suggested two that I believe we did last year, season three, the one where the girl got kidnapped off the base and mm-hmm. killed. And that was over in Texas and he got the death penalty and gosh, what was the other one? Let me look it up real quick. It's not to do those cases, look them up or, you know, research. Yeah, she, um, she's awesome. And, uh, she's the one that recommended the prosecutors podcast, which is really, really good. Okay. Let's see here. Yeah. Well, where is our podcast? Is it cold? I knew there was. Huh? Is it cold there? It's like 31 degrees here. Oh, yeah. Well, how strange. I don't know why our podcast isn't coming up. Let's see. Here we go. Okay, so episode or season three, she recommended Tracy McBride. So that was the one where um, she got kidnapped off the base. And then the Orsi family murders. That was where that guy killed his wife. One of his daughters shot the twins, but they were able to escape. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. Okay. So shout out to Peggy. Thank you so much for your research. So Fotis uh, Doulis and Jennifer Farber was her maiden name. They had met years before they married when they were both students at Brown University an Ivy League school that's uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. You know, what's funny about Rhode Island is I went through it with my dad once, and you blink and you miss it. I mean, it's such a small state. And they never dated, but later Jennifer wrote that they did have, quote, special chemistry together, something special and precious. After they went their separate ways, they saw each other at the Aspen Airport in 2003, and they reconnected. And she wrote in her blog, Lightning Finally Struck. And by the way, her blog is still up. Um, Let me pull it up for you. So it's right here. uh, Makes six, uh, let's see, makes 605 dot whatever's whatever's. Um, I don't. 
I don't know. Oh, and five makes seven is what it's called. So she said, um, there's not enough time in December to do it all. Next year, I'll be on top of it. I have both more time and less. Noel in school as well. Funny. Someday, someday there'll be uh, time I had, especially before I married, when I lived in Colorado, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So she's just, she had this blog where she would just discuss her daily life, eating more healthy, kids, uh, you know, et cetera. And then I've got a photo of her here. And here she is. Uh, and she, I mean, she looks like she yeah. has some type of ethnicity other than, you know, like British or Irish. Like maybe she's um, Greek as well. I don't know. But that's both of them when they were married. Oh, sorry. So that's them right there. I wonder why she has a blog still up. That's unusual, isn't it? I know. I figured it'd be taken down by now. And uh, Dulos at the time when they met at the Aspen airport, he was going through a divorce and it was finalized July of 2004. He and Jennifer then married a month later at the Metropolitan Club in Manhattan. So they meet again at the airport in 2003, and then they're married in 2004. So I'm assuming that between when they saw each other at the Aspen Airport and the time they got married, that they were probably communicating and talking while his divorce was going, you know, like running its course. And they married in Manhattan, and they're both wealthy, as I'm sure you can, you know, tell by the photos. Well, Jennifer was wealthy. I'm not sure about photoses, which we'll get into later. But Jennifer grew up in wealth. Her father was a prominent banker. And then her mother's brother co-founded a billion billion dollar design firm with his life and you'll rec wife, and you'll recognize her as Liz Claiborne. So oh, yeah. The Metropolitan to get married there. I'm fairly certain that's expensive. Yeah. 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 And now, um, you know, Jennifer was very industrious despite coming from family. I mean, she had regular income that came from her trust fund, but she was a writer. And then she also co-founded a theater company in the 90s. And she was stunning. And from what I could tell, she was a very um, wonderful person. I mean, everybody just had great things to say about her. She loved her kids a lot and spent a lot of time with them. Now, Fotis, I mean, if we go back to his his picture, I mean, he's a, uh, a handsome man uh, for sure. And um, let me see if I have any more pictures of him separate. He doesn't um, look great, does he? Not to me. Mm -mm. No, I thought he was Middle Eastern. I didn't... So, which men are usually shorter? Well, he doesn't nose. look tall. Yeah, he doesn't yeah, look tall. Yeah, I mean... Here's a picture of them, and these are women. Are, mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's probably pretty pretty short. But, yeah, he doesn't look that Greek to me as well. Well, here it is in my notes. He was born in Turkey, so that makes sense. Ah, yeah, okay. but raised in Greece. And then mm -hmm. he came to the U.S. for college, and he earned a bachelor's at Brown and an MBA at Columbia. Both colleges wow. with expensive tuition. So I'm thinking he had to have come from some means for sure. And even though he was <clears throat> attractive, <clears throat> excuse me, and along, you know, and come from, you know, good background, good money, etc. A friend of Jennifer said that he was a rigid man, moody 
and gloomy at times. He was also quick to point out Jennifer's shortcomings. And so I'm thinking there's probably some control and some, um, um, what's the word? Demanding behavior going on. What kind of behavior? Demanding. Ah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, not to say anything, you know, against Middle Eastern culture, but I have found in the cases that we do where there there's Middle Eastern backgrounds um, and even knowing some Middle Eastern couples, there does seem to be that that dynamic there where the husband is more controlling, is uh, more demanding and the woman is expected to play a subservient role. So I don't want to characterize all people from the Middle East like that, but I have noticed that in the cases where we've done, you know, people with those backgrounds. Have y'all noticed that as well? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but in some of my stores. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wide, you know. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, the culture, that's that's been the culture for hundreds, hundreds, maybe thousands of years where, um, they're the head, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now between 2006 and 2010, they had five kids. So this is a four year period. They had two sets of twins. That's unusual, isn't it? I mean, for me, that'd be like, no, thank you. You know what I mean? I'd be like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm out. Um, but they settled down in Connecticut and life, as you can imagine, was extremely busy. Fotis founded the Four Group, a luxury real estate development company that was in heavy debt to Jennifer's father. Mm-hmm. And later, a judge ordered him to pay Jennifer's mother almost $2 million to settle the loans after Jennifer disappeared. So I don't know if the father passed away during this time and the money was due to the mother why it was ordered to her, but a judge did order $2 million to be paid back to Jennifer's mom. And then another thing, and I don't know if Jennifer, I mean, she didn't sound like an introvert, but she could have been, but she didn't have many friendships of her own in Connecticut. So that could possibly be a sign, you know, like why, why does it, she have a lot of friends, especially considering that she owns a business, but a writer you know, is a lonely job, a theater, you would think she'd be around lots of people. And now Fotis, so he had his friends, he had his interests, and they basically became her own. So she just adopted his own stuff. Didn't she stop working once she had the kids? Um, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, Let's see. Raising five children, being married to Fotis wasn't easy because when the kids were small, yeah, it sounds like maybe she, I mean, she wrote, but I don't know if she kept the uh, theater company. But what would happen is whatever house Dulos was working on, he would move the family into. So he'd buy a house and then he would do whatever work it needed. And then while it was on the market, they would live in that house and then they would be building another. So it sounds like it was builds or maybe it was remodels, but for sure builds and so he would just move the family into that house while he waited for it to sell. And he, they just kept doing that. And most of the homes were over 10,000 square feet. And so they were too large to furnish for her. 
uh, and to decorate and all of that before it sold. So for a while, they lived out of cardboard boxes in a series of model mansions until the mid-2010s when they moved into their final home, which was a brick colonial that was over 14,000 square feet in Farmington. And let me see if I have a picture of the the property. I don't think that I do. Oh, I might. Yeah. Now, what about the cardboard boxes? What? They had they just lived out of cardboard boxes because she couldn't uh unpack and you know oh. decorate and all that uh, fast enough. So here it is. Wow. That's huge. And the marriage, it was already deteriorating at this point. It would get worse. Fotis's parents moved to the States, but tragedy struck when Fotis's nanny ran over Fotis's mother and killed her in a freak accident. Oh, my. Yeah. And then his father developed complications from an autoimmune disease. And so at that point, it's like Fotis checked out. He'd go off on water skiing trips around the world for as long as 10 days a month, skiing and competitions, and he was really good at it. He'd regularly visit friends and family in Greece. He traveled on the private plane of one of his best friend's uh, dad. He was basically living the high life, gallivanting all over the world, while Jennifer stayed at home with five kids. And you can imagine she got more and more depressed because he was gone all the time. That was his nanny? When he was younger, the mother died when he was younger, right? No, it says that after they moved here, I'm sure they had a nanny for the kids because you got two he twins. Oh, like it was the his nanny. Well, it's Jennifer and Fotis's nanny. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. That and um, <clears throat> and so the few friends that Jennifer had, Fotis didn't like, so he would like you know come in between them, try to cut off those relationships. And I think it was during this time, he was starting to get more aggressive with her and he was starting to display more anger publicly. So the few friends that she did have were concerned at how things were going. Like one of the instances is he punched out a parking lot attendant at his parents' apartment building and then he was very controlling with the kids. So when Jennifer filed for divorce, she wrote that he was trying to train them to ski at a high level and the kids didn't want to. So they would come home physically and emotionally exhausted from the training sessions and they would beg Jennifer to do something about it because they didn't want to ski on that level. They didn't want to do any of that, but they were all terrified to, to you know, quote, disobey Fotis. And she also claimed in her divorce documents, that Fotis became enraged during one of the sessions and he threw one of his skis against the rock and broke it. So I don't think there was any drug use, but there was definitely this anger was coming out. He's starting to go after the kids. He's punching people out. So you can imagine the rage that she was seeing behind the scenes. Again, I don't know that he was physically abusive at this point, but the final straw came when Jennifer's dad died in 2017. So that does make sense that the judge ordered the mom to be paid back. Um, this is when he, she learned that he was having an affair with a Venezuelan woman named Michelle uh, Tracona. So let me bring her and him up. Okay, let's see. Where are they? Mm. So there's... 
uh, Michelle Traconis, and then this is them at some, it looks like an orchestra event or something, and uh, he, she was an advanced skier, so I'm assuming they met each other on the ski slopes, and <clears throat> sometimes, hang on guys, I don't want to be coughing in everybody's ears. He and seems so arrogant. He probably didn't try to even hide the affair. It doesn't sound like it. She also did marketing and PR for high-end ski resorts. She was very tall, very athletic. She had a goal to rank in the top 50 female water skiers. She also had a teenage daughter. And I'm not sure like, if Jennifer confronted Fotis or how it all came out. But he wanted Jennifer and the kids to stay with them, and he even suggested that Traconis and his daughter move in with them because the house was big enough. Wow. <laughs> Didn't that first picture sort of look like his wife, Jennifer, a little bit? The, yes. the long hair and the... Yeah, comments. I yeah, thought it was at first. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, from Middle Eastern country where you might hear more stories like that. Now, Jennifer didn't let her move her in, did he? She do what? Jennifer didn't let her move in, did she? No. Yeah, I was going to say that'd be. No, and not only that, but she learned that Fotis got a nine millimeter Glock, millimeter Glock, in spite of their agreement not to have guns in the house with the kids. You know, when they're raising their kids, she didn't want any guns around. So she found out when the kids told her that Fotis had showed them the gun. So in June 2017, under literal cover of night, she loaded up the kids while movers packed some of their belongings, and she moved to New Canaan, Connecticut. When Fotis came home later, he called 911 to report his children missing and something stolen. Jennifer filed for divorce the next day and requested emergency custody of the children. She was denied, but later she got custody when he kept disobeying the judge's orders by exposing the kids to his new lover, Michelle Traconis, and her daughter. So the judge is like, you can't do that. Leave the girlfriend out. He kept disobeying. So then she gets the the you know, the kids. But I don't know why she wouldn't have gotten custody. I mean, do y'all have any thoughts on that? He may have had more money, better attorney. Mm -hmm. um, well, calling the police to and reporting them all missing except his wife. Um, she took them maybe I don't know. maybe yeah I don't know how that worked out but in the end she ended up getting them she was also terrified of him and she knew that this was the most dangerous time for any woman living an abusive relationship so she was aware and she written during this time that she was quote afraid of her husband she knew that filing for divorce would enrage him and she said that he was vengeful, and I know that he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way. Her main concern was that he was going to take the children and disappear with them in Greece. I bet when she, he bought the gun is when she <clears throat> was scared. Knew. I bet. I bet that was a huge, you know, um, that's a turning point. That's when she left him, you know. Now, Peggy added... Six signs of escalating violence in the Dulos marriage. Uh, and it's from the greenwichtime.com. 
that I wanted to read. But Elena, did you have something? It looked like you were about to say something. Um, the crappy, audastic thing for them to have an agreement about no gun because of the kids and then showing the kids the gun. Yeah. Kind of, what kind of psychopath, sociopath behavior is that? I know. And what I find weird too, and it may be the arrogance that he has, but you showed the kids a gun. So now they know you have a gun. So if, if, if he got back to her, well, if he killed her with the gun, you know, the kids would be able to say, we saw a gun. So it is kind of a weird thing that he would show the weapon. Maybe he was just being an ass to her. Probably. Now, here's the, the, um, the, the warning signs that were specific to this marriage. The first one was intimidation and threats. In August, after the separation divorce filing, Fotis was returning children to Jennifer, who was standing in her driveway. Dulos purposely sped up his car and aimed it at Jennifer, and then he swerved at the last second. This was wit- witnessed by the five children and the nanny. In addition, he did threaten to take the children and leave the country so that she couldn't find them. The second was a disregard for the law. Dulos bought the gun, and it was believed that it was unlicensed. He brought the gun into the home against Jennifer's wishes. He did not have the required uh, permit to carry the weapon. He repeatedly violated uh, court orders in the divorce suit. He violate, violated alimony, child support, property, and custody orders. The That's a thir- really good point. Do what? It's a really good point that we, t- or at least me, I typically don't think of that as a sign or flag. You know, Betty Broderick did that. She violated all the court orders and before she killed her ex and his uh, new wife. So, the, yeah, I didn't think about that either. But when you look back, you can see just a disregard for the law. And maybe he was disregarding the law and the rules because he was planning to take them to Greece. Could be. Or he didn't care. No, I don't think he cared. Could be both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He also um, had controlling behavior, which we've seen a lot. He was known to verbally attack Jennifer both privately and publicly. After a particularly bad argument, he followed her upstairs to the bedroom. He shut the door and blocked it so she couldn't leave. And then he continued to shout at her while intimidating her by not allowing her to leave the bathroom or the bedroom. One of the children and the nanny were also in the bedroom. And then many times he told Jennifer that he would never, air quote, allow her to divorce him, ever. So now we have the controlling behavior. I'm never going to allow you to divorce her. My mom's freaking out. You didn't see that? What? The confetti fell down? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Elena. Do it again. (coughs) I'm sorry. You guys knew. I had her going. You guys are horrible children. I knew that was going to be Sherry. I'm like, I'll do it. Horrible. Horrible. You knew it. You were like, what? <laughs> no what what I'm and like, I kept trying to do one like incognito and it wasn't working you guys are the worst 
<laughs> That's horrible, children. Man, I had her going too. Uh, oh. I had to go to the doctor immediately tomorrow. I had to keep a straight face. I was almost believed her, and then you just a little. I know. It's ridiculous. <sighs> Sorry, Sherry. Oh, man. That's okay. Horrible. So, for people that can't see, um, you'll hear occasionally on some of the episodes, mom's like, look, balloons, look, confetti. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't see anything. Like, do you need medication? Are you okay? Blah, blah. Last night? Yeah. Yeah, I had you going the whole time. Yep. We, we accidentally figured it out because when we were hanging up one, all of a sudden balloons went down. I'm like, how did that happen? And then we figured out in the next episode, and it was just nonstop. There's the balloons. Anyway, it's on Zoom. For, so for some reason, there's these animations that happen. We had mom going. Well, I did until Elena screwed everything up. Well, I'm telling you, I That's was like doubting last night on the way home. I'm like, nobody saw them but me. I wonder if something's wrong. Maybe my medication. So you did the thumbs up one. I hadn't seen that one yet. So well, I was And I'm surprised. trying to get the, the bottom one too because it'll do... Uh, like um thunderstorms <laughs> i'm just gonna tell y'all i don't want your christmas list i don't need your christmas list <laughs> okay we gotta get back to the crime okay all right yeah. so he also had verbal abuse and public shaming uh, he denigrated Jennifer constantly in front of their five children, claiming she was an unfit mother and that she was insane. He even told the police after the disappearance that Jennifer is presently taking medication for mental health issues, intimating that she ran away because she is mentally unstable. Number five, he was quick to anger and it was increasing. And then uh, he would also go into a rage when there was a schedule conflict, when he wanted to take the kids for their you know, skiing training when it was actually abuse. And then number six was violence toward others. Did it, Does it say anything about how he was with his ex-wife? No, and I, I did look it up. I was curious. And mm-hmm. that's one thing that, I mean, it may sound strange, but I just think it's a good idea, if at all possible, to speak with the ex-spouse. thousand uh-huh. percent. I actually am very familiar with someone that did that yeah I I just think it's a good idea Mm -hmm. I sure did but you know a lot of people won't listen because they think oh she's just jealous or she's telling lies yeah and I think that if you oh I'm sorry go ahead I think that um if you have that feeling in your gut or something just seems off and you're actually putting forth that effort to either validate it or just check in on the past. I think that you're open to those things. Yeah. And I, that's why I was going to say too, or in addition, when you're with that person, you know, you'll, you, you'll be able to tell, like if, if I believe, like if they're very angry or bitter, that's going to come out. And that's probably a clue that they're going to maybe exaggerate things. But if you get with the ex and they're calm and they're just like, yes, I was married to him for this long. This is a behavior that I saw. I think you could probably trust that more than someone that's really mad still and bitter. Like that to me would be a sign that I may take what they say with a grain of salt. But you can also talk to friends 
and, you know, of the spouse and things like that, if possible, if you can figure out. Um, people may think it's silly to do that, but I mean, we've just seen over and over where these people have been married before. And then you do hear about later where the spouses are like, yeah, he tried to choke me one time or he, you know, hit me or he threatened to run over me or whatever it is. And I just think if, if you're in doubt, if you see red flags, please dig deeper and also understand that when you're with someone at the, especially at the beginning, you've got about 1400 chemicals flowing in your, your bloodstream that make you feel that you have fallen in love. So it's like the, the love sick deal and your brain cannot think clearly. So a lot of people don't want to check into it because they, you know, they want to be with this person, they're head over heels, you know, in love and they, um, don't want to know if there's any bad background. And, you know, research has shown that it's like a person who's drunk when they first fall for somebody. And uh, so, you know, just know that. Know how your brain is. Know how your body responds to that. And just use common sense. And don't dismiss any red flags if you start seeing them like anger issues, wanting to move too fast, gaslighting, etc. You know, I'd be really good at gaslighting because I was gaslighting mom like for three hours yesterday. That is the perfect of gaslighting. I did it good, didn't I? Both of you did. Well, and what I was saying was when you did the thumbs up and seeing that, and that's why I was trying to catch myself because it was, and then I was like, there's something on your face. And then I thought I'd jack with her a little bit that, you know, there was something going on with your face, but then you started believing me, freaking out a little bit. I'm like, no, I wasn't believing you at all. I was going along with it. Yeah. Good. Unlike, unlike you going along with mine, but whatever. That's lighting. That's awful. You know, though, you have to be careful too, though. If you have red flags, even if you're dating someone and they're angry and you talk to an ex-wife and if she tells that person, man or woman, I mean, it could not be, I mean, well, that's true it could go south but i think that would be maybe don't stay with them then right but a lot of people do now yeah if you're afraid to talk to an ex-wife or a family member that's a huge red flag Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. just just get out your wrath yeah The divorce was contentious as heck. Custody issues were even worse. And it was still going on two years later uh, in 2019. Get this, 300 motions filed. So this takes us to Jennifer's disappearance. The Friday morning before Memorial Day, May 24th, 2019, Jennifer got her five kids ready for school and she dropped them off at their private school and it was less than a mile away from where she lived. She was driving her Chevy Suburban and then she had a doctor's appointment that day in Manhattan and then an orthodontist appointment for the kiddos later in the afternoon. A neighbor's security camera captured her returning from the school and pulling into her driveway at 8.05 a.m. She opened her garage door using the remote and she drove in. She was never seen again and her body has not been found to this day. Oh, oh man. Lauren, Al- do what? Cameras on the house, do you know? Uh, it wasn't as popular as it is now. That's true, too. I don't know. I, I know they got a lot of stuff uh, that he was up to on cameras, 
but I don't know if there were any on her house. Now, the long-time nanny, and I'm wondering if it's the same one that accidentally killed Fotis' mom, she arrived at 1130 and noticed several things that were unusual, but she wasn't thinking that a crime had occurred. Uh, The first thing was Jennifer normally drove the Range Rover into the city versus the Suburban, but the Range Rover was still in the garage and the Suburban was gone. So if she had gone to her appointment in Manhattan, the, an- the nanny thought it was strange that she didn't take the Range Rover. She also noticed that Jennifer's handbag was on the floor between the mudroom and the kitchen, and there was an unno- unopened granola bar and a mug of tea on the kitchen counter. The rear door to the mudroom was unlocked, and that was also abnormal. But again, you know, she didn't think anything nefarious happened. Uh, she probably reasoned away everything that maybe she just grabbed her keys and wallet and headed out and didn't need her purse. Maybe she had a reason to take the Suburban. Uh, maybe she got called away on a quick errand, you know, and didn't finish her snack and forgot her purse. I mean, you know, she's there's all kinds of reasons that I'm sure she came up with. Um, but, you know, things start progressing pretty quickly from there. She washed the mug. And then she picked up the kids from school. They were let out early for the holiday weekend. She made them lunch, which was planned. That was part of her duties. And then she was periodically texting Jennifer. But she started getting concerned because Jennifer wasn't responding. Now, it just wasn't like her at all. Because, you know, if she got a text from the nanny, she's going to answer it because she's with her kids. She also didn't show up to get the kids for the appointment. So Lauren said, Quote, my first thought was Fotis did something. Oh. Now, Laurel Watts is Jennifer's good friend, reported her missing that evening at 7 p.m. She noticed the police or notified the police that she was going through a divorce with, quote, a man that has threatened her in the past and owns a gun. When police spoke with the nanny later, she told them that she also noticed when she arrived at the house another, quote, incredibly strange thing the day she went missing. She said that she went into the pantry to refill the paper towel holder in the kitchen and noticed there were only two rolls there, but she had just bought a brand new pack of 12 the night before. So between the night before and the next day when she arrived, 10 uh, paper towel rolls have been used. So the police mm-hmm. discovered later that's because there was a lot of cleanup. Yeah. yeah. Wow, 10 rolls. Yeah, y'all are like on echo. Like it would clean up a lot of blood. 10 rolls. Yeah. Depends how he killed him, probably. Well, it was with the gun, wasn't it? I, we don't know because her body's never been found. Okay. A closer examination of the home revealed traces of Jennifer's blood in the garage, the kitchen, and three different vehicles, which I'll get into in a bit. Blood was also on clothes, sponges, mops, two rain ponchos, and zip ties and garbage bags found in Hartford, a 90-minute drive from the home, which we'll get into that as well. Her empty SUV was found abandoned in a park three miles away with its running lights on and the transmission in reverse and blood spatter on the passenger side. Now, I believe the car was left the way it was in the park to make it look like she was kidnapped by a stranger in the park. 
Yeah, because blood splatter, that doesn't make sense if they found so much blood in the home. Let me see if I have. Okay, so I don't have a picture of the park. No, I don't. Okay. So I think that it was staged. That way, you know, a stranger abducted her. She went to the park for a run or something, and the stranger got her. Police knew, you know, something definitely is wrong, and they, you know, amp up their investigation. The information that follows is from legal documents and warrants. Security cameras at the park showed a red, and I do have that, a red pickup truck um, parked in almost the exact same spot that the SUV was parked in. It was a Toyota Camp. Uh, Tacomas. You see it right here. The owner, Powell, and I can't pronounce his last name. He was a project manager at Fotis's construction company. And it appears that Fotis borrowed his truck to run some errands. And one of those errands was obviously at the park where Jennifer, uh, her car was found. He helped fill in the blanks later. And I think that the, you know, police probably sus, you know, like he was a suspect as well, but he ended up not being involved and then this is the another view of the vehicle a more very smart was he yeah he wasn't brilliant most of these guys aren't um i mean they haven't been found yet yeah that's true that's you know that that's like the uh anna walsh case as well which i think is very similar and yeah they were able to get rid of the bodies well but when it comes to um, not getting caught on camera. And then remember, you know, Walsh Googled everything. Uh, I mean, you know, they're, they're obviously collecting circumstantial evidence for a case. And so we may not know where the bodies are, but we know that they did it based on that evidence. And they did a more thorough search of the garage at Jennifer's and they found blood splatter on the driver's side of the Range Rover and the garage floor next to it. So I think it's on the outside of the vehicle and then on the floor. And then it looked like someone had attempted to clean up the blood. They also found blood on the garage wall and door on the Range Rover's hood, bumper, and rear fender. And it was all Jennifer's based on DNA. Police believe Jennifer was first assaulted in the garage once the door shut, and then and when she arrived back home, you know, after taking the kids to school that morning, and then based on the blood evidence, the state's chief medical examiner, Dr. James R. Gill, determined that she had suffered enough injuries that she wouldn't have survived without medical treatment because of the amount of blood, and that the DA would be able to um, uh, develop a, a no-body case. He believes that she was bludgeoned or stabbed to death or both because of the blood, the splatter, et cetera, and ruled it a homicide of violence. But so it happened potentially in the garage, maybe when she got out of her vehicle, unless she went in and came back to her car because there was the tea, the granola bar and her purse inside of the home. That's true. Yeah, so maybe he was in the house and she tried to get away. Ah, maybe brought her back. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. With all the blood too, that wouldn't be a gunshot. Probably, like she said, stabbed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Hit. 
police discovered what they felt was a motive, uh, Fotis was losing control of both Jennifer and the kids. He was deeply in debt. He owed $7 million to various people and entities. Plus, he owed millions to Jennifer's family. He was financing Four Group, his company, through advances and shuffling money through different accounts to keep things going. But if he got custody of the kids, he could access their trust funds to get himself out of hot water. Lovely. You know, being in construction, too, who knows where the body could be. It could be under cement. It could be. Yeah, there's no telling. Yeah, very, very good point. The nanny noticed something uh, on May 22nd. So remember, she disappeared May 24th. On May 22nd, Fotis had supervised visits, and he was supposed to take the kids to a park for a picnic. He told Jennifer that it had closed early, and he requested to visit them there. Jennifer refused to let him in the house. He was not allowed. And she locked the rear mudroom door while they visited in the backyards. So that tells you how scared she is of this guy. Mm-hmm. So remember, when the nanny gets there, the mudroom door is unlocked. Was there a restraining order on him? Do you know? Not that I know of. Wouldn't surprise me, though. Here's what I'm wondering. Did he ask one of the kids to unlock it for him? Yeah. Because mm. the nanny wouldn't have. Jennifer wouldn't have. So May 22nd, and it was that Friday that they had gotten out of school early and she disappeared. What day did she disappear? I don't know if it was, I mean, it's May 24th, 2019. So I don't remember if it's a Friday or not. Probably. Well, I mean, so he came to visit the kids. She locked the mudroom door. May 22nd. Yeah. And then that Friday. So just two days later on the 20. And the police swabbed the inside of the door and they found his DNA on it. So they know that's how he got into the house. Uh, and remember her purse and was in between the kitchen and the mudroom. So it makes you wonder if she dropped it. He had to be in the garage, though, because mudrooms are usually right at the back door of the garage or the front door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he was close in the vicinity. He was somewhere in the house close waiting to pounce. Now, he tries to give an alibi. On the morning Jennifer disappeared, his uh, mistress, Draconis, and then his long-term, longtime friend and former attorney, Kent Mahini, alibied him. Initially, both said that she and Fotis woke up showered together, and had sex. She then said that, the, uh, Traconis then said that she took her daughter to school, and when she returned, both Fotis and Kent were meeting in the office area at the headquarters for four group. That was around 8.15. At 8.24, Fotis re- received a call from a friend in Greece, but it didn't take long for the cops to begin to pick apart his alibi. Homeland Security agents seized the friend's phone, and discovered that Fotis had instructed his friend to call him at a specific time in text messages. Fotis lived 70 miles away, so the call made it impossible for him to be at Jennifer's. So that's why he wanted the, the phone call to come to his phone. Then his lawyers tried to say that Jennifer was unstable, probably ran off and tried to kill herself. Then that fell apart when Traconis changed her story and admitted that she was the one that answered the phone that was from the friend in Greece and that uh, she did not see photos the m- morning that Jennifer disappeared. Mahini 
was also self-contradictory in interviews and admitted that he hadn't seen Fotis that morning. So on May 25th, Fotis went to the police station. He declined to be interviewed or assist at all in Jennifer's disappearance. Um, But he did turn over his cell phone without any, quote, apparent hesitation, and it was a gold mine. They set it to airplane mode to prevent tampering, and then they secured a warrant. The data allowed them to track his movements that afternoon and evening and get the footage they needed to arrest him and Traconis and Mahini for evidence tampering and uh, hindering prosecution. Okay. I thought thought maybe he had another phone. Why would you hand over evidence? That's stupid. Well, he probably thought they couldn't find anything on it. (laughs) People are dumb. Yeah, that's how they find most stuff. I know. Okay, here we go. Dulos is in custody this morning, accused of kidnapping and murdering his estranged wife, Jennifer, who has been missing almost eight months. The couple embroiled in a bitter divorce and custody battle over their five children. His girlfriend and his former attorney are also facing conspiracy charges in the case. In a statement, relatives of Jennifer expressed relief about the charges, but added there's no sense of closure. Nothing can bring Jennifer back. For months, Dulos has maintained his innocence, including this exclusive interview with Dateline last year. Did you have anything to do with Jennifer's disappearance? I did not, but I'd like to leave it at that. In arrest warrants, investigators say Dulos laid in wait at the couple's home for Jennifer to return home from dropping their children off at school one morning. Police documents list evidence of bloody items matching Jennifer's DNA found in the garage and elsewhere. Dulos and girlfriend Michelle Traconis, who were already charged with tampering with evidence back in June, pleaded not guilty and were free on bail. Traconis, investigators say, has admitted to providing false handwritten alibis about the crime, in which the three suspects are mentioned. Now, investigators citing a gag order won't say what led them to charge Dulos with murder. This investigation is still ongoing. Dulos's attorney maintains he is innocent. We categorically deny that Mr. Dulos had any involvement in the disappearance of his wife, Jennifer. And despite months of extensive searches, Jennifer Dulos has not been found. Her disappearance now a case of murder, still very much a mystery. Okay. Now, here's what they know. So let me go through the evidence. According to arrest warrants, cell phone records, and surveillance cameras, and then the OnStar vehicle data, photos and Traconis spent the afternoon going back and forth from their home and then another four-group property two miles away. They claimed to be cleaning it and needed to get cleaning supplies from their home. But I'm wondering if that's that was the cover for what they were actually doing because, and I think I have a photo of the, um, the errands they were running, but in this picture... And then in this one, uh, what what was happening is there were bags, like garbage bags and different items in the back of the pickup truck. And they were driving all over the place and he would stop and just throw some bags in garbage cans throughout the city. Now, I, I'm not sure if Traconis was unaware that he had killed her. She said that she had no idea and that he just asked her to lie, so she did. I don't know. I haven't been able to find any evidence that she was in any way involved in her murder. But she helped 
get rid of some of those bags. She sat though. in the car. She didn't get out. Oh. Yeah. But there's things. First of all, obviously, shame on them. However, if you have a boyfriend or a husband mm-hmm. um, that uh, has asked you to lie and it just so happens that whoever they're battling with has disappeared, mm-hmm. you know, that's a flag. Mm-hmm. Let's not do that. It is. Um, also, two um, uh, raincoats found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. There were two. Yeah, I'm not saying it was her. blood on them. Yeah, but mm-hmm. hmm, why do you, why two? Yeah. Now, uh, the former lawyer said on May 29th that Fotis took his truck. Oh no, I'm sorry. The worker, the foreman for Fotis, uh, you know, the Red Tacoma owner, said that he took his truck quote without his knowledge or consent to a car wash to have it cleaned and fully detailed. Now, he, you know, Fotis and Traconis had been, they had already cleaned the truck. So he obviously wasn't, you know, putting much faith in their cleaning job. So he had it detailed. And he said that Fotis later urged him to replace the Tacoma seats. You know, so not yeah. suspicious at all, right? He did keep the, so he did have them replaced, but he kept the original seats in case the police ever wanted to take them. So I like this guy. So basically, Fotis takes his pickup without his permission or knowledge, uses it in the crime that he has committed, and then he washes it with Traconis. Then he has it detailed, and then he urges his uh, employee to replace the seats. His employee does, but he keeps the original ones. And, uh, huh? He's smarter than the husband. Well, you go ahead and replace the seats. There must have been stains because police found Jennifer's DNA in a blood-like substance in the seats. So I'm wondering if they were stained. And then surveillance showed Traconis's SUV behind the Tacoma when Fotis took it to the car wash. And uh, so the guy that he borrowed, you know, if you want to use that term, his um, his Tacoma thinks that Fotis was actually trying to frame him. Oh. And then he also told police how he thinks Fotis was able to go to Jennifer's without being spotted. Once you look closely at this picture here, and you'll notice this item right here in the back. So he recently fixed a bike for Fotis, a French-made childhood bike. Traconis later confirmed that it was missing from the spot where she and Kent saw it in Fotis's garage. Residential cameras also captured someone riding a vintage bicycle dressed in dark clothing with the hood pulled down, hiding his or her faith in the face in the direction of Jennifer's house. Surveillance cameras also captured what appears to be the rim of the bicycle in the back of the Tacoma. So here's the rim right here. Uh, cameras captured Jennifer Suburban leaving her house at 1025 that morning. They believe at this point, Fotis is the one driving it and that Jennifer's body is in it as well as the cleaning items. That's so sad. So here's what police have pulled together. The Tacoma was captured 
on surveillance video in a number of places in Connecticut on May 24th, starting with its departure at 5.35 a.m. from the Mountain Spring Road property before returning there at 12.30 p.m. According to the police timeline, Fotis would have had ample time to drive from Farmington to New Canaan, park the Tacoma at Wavenee Park, bike the three miles to Jennifer's home, kill her, attempt to clean the garage, put her body and bloody evidence in her own car, drive it to the park turnoff where he switched cars and then drove the Tacoma back to Farmington. They also, like I said, this is him later getting rid of trash and that's Traconis. It's bending down. Um, She said she dropped something and she was picking it up. This is also him driving the same day in uh, the Tacoma, I believe, at an ATM machine. So a a jacket and button up. So a search, you know, obviously was launched. uh, And then uh, Fotis invited Tracona to drive with him to Starbucks 10 miles away at Hartford. This time they're in his, so this is the picture, in his uh, Ford Raptor. It's about 7.30 p.m. Using cell phone data and surveillance, they spotted photos stopping at various trash receptacles and putting full plastic garbage bags into them from the bed of his truck. Within 10 minutes, he had emptied the bed of bags. Cameras also captured a large rigid object being removed from the back of his pickup and leaned up against a building. They believe it was a missing cargo liner from Jennifer's Suburban. Traconis confirmed that she was with Fotis, but she wasn't paying attention because she was on her phone. So what do y'all think about her involvement? That's too many trash bag mm-hmm. drops. And then you're asked to lie. I think she knew. I think she knew, but do you think she helped in the murder? Yes. I kind of do. Because of or the two, two because of the two rain ponchos? Yeah. The only thing I would say is if she was with his former lawyer, then she could not have been at the crime. I would say the very least is after the, f- the fact. She's helping cover up the crime. But I am, just because like you pointed out, I didn't think about that. The two rain ponchos, that indicates possibly two people. Mm-hmm. I think she helped cleaned it up for sure. Me too. Now, they recovered the bags. mm -hmm. They found videos, a woman's vineyard vines, shirt and bra, paper towels, sponge, mop handle gloves, the two rain ponchos, a towel, and zip ties all covered in blood. Swabs taken from the bags, tape and glove, match Fotis' DNA and Traconis' was found on one bag. Mm -mm. His fingerprints were also on the tape attached to the inside of a few of the bags and a logo matching the vintage bike was also found. And finally, surveillance showed photos placing a large item in a storm drain. It was uh, two Connecticut license plate numbers and letters that had been altered with tape. The plates had been used on a car registered to photos. Obviously an idiot. So after... um, Seven months of collecting evidence and investigating photos, prosecutors charged him with capital murder, murder, and kidnapping on January 7th, 2020. Now, I don't know what the capital murder and murder is about. Maybe they wanted like two charges. That way, if they said no to capital murder, they'd have the other. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Let's see. And zip ties. Why were there zip ties? Probably to maybe either bind up Jennifer or uh, maybe close the, the bags. Or bind her up to go bury her. Yeah. I don't know if they found them, but. Killing another person without justification and is considered to be the most serious crime a person can commit. Yeah, I'm thinking that there were two murder charges. That way they had their bets covered at trial because I have heard of people getting off because the only option they had was capital murder and they didn't agree that it was capital. So uh, now both he and Traconis were also charged with evidence tampering September of 2019. So these charges, the latest ones, were January 7th, 2020. Fotis was released on house arrest after posting a $6 million bond. Um, and he was due back in court January 28th. But like most poop birds, this is what he did. Witness newsroom tonight, but we start with breaking news we've been following all night long. The man accused of killing his estranged wife is now dead. Fotis Dulos died tonight around 5.30 at a hospital in New York City following an attempted suicide at his home in Farmington on Tuesday. His death obviously raising a lot of questions Yeah, here. that's for sure. We have team coverage for you tonight trying to get some answers. Uh, and we start with Channel 3 Eyewitness News reporter Roger Suzanin. He's live outside the Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx where Dulos's lawyer made this announcement a few hours ago. Roger. Yeah, Mark and Aaron, of course, Fotis Dulos was rushed to this hospital in the Bronx on Tuesday afternoon. And since then, a lot has been said and a lot has been written about this accused killer. But tonight, you know, it only took his lawyer eight simple words to tell the world that the life of Fotis Dulos has ended. Fotis Dulos was declared dead tonight at 532. As it turns out, this was Fotis Dulos's last ride. He was flown to Jacoby Medical Center on Tuesday after he tried to kill himself. In the end, he was successful. The man accused of murdering his estranged wife in cold blood was taken off life support, surrounded by loved ones. It's been a, a, a truly uh, horrific day for the family, filled with difficult decisions, medical tests, and meeting the requirements to determine death. Relatives flew here from Greece last night and visited Dulos this morning. They all knew the significant carbon monoxide poisoning made any kind of meaningful recovery impossible. So the question became, what else could be done? His family came in from Greece and decided today to donate his organs so that he will live on in some form. The people who still love Fotis Dulos maintain he is innocent, and his lawyer, Norm Pattis, even filed a motion asking the state to go forward with charges against the Fotis Dulos estate. To force the state to show its hand in a trial filled with evidence we think that amounts to no more than innuendo and unsupported suspicion. But Pattis admits it will be difficult to persuade the state. After all, how can you punish a man who already killed himself? So public opinion will likely be the only court that judges Fotis Dulos. Pattis swears, despite the way it ended, Fotis Dulos is somehow not the only one responsible for his demise. We say it was more a, conscious, a conscience overborne with the weight of a world that was too busy to listen and that wanted a story more than it wanted the truth. I can tell you I wouldn't want his organs in anybody. No. I couldn't imagine because I think that they're 
anonymous, but I think maybe I'm wrong. They are like other murders. Yeah. Um, organs in you though. Now he, at this point he had a new girlfriend. Her name was Anna Curry and she was at his home that morning. Yeah. He gets around. They had planned to drive to the courthouse together, but Fotis wanted to go separately. On the way, Curry got a call from Fotis's lawyer asking where he was. She told him that they were driving separately, but the GPS tracking data that was probably on his ankle, you know, Flitchett, showed that he was at home. So she immediately called 911. Police found him unresponsive in his garage he had attached a vacuum cleaner hose from the exhaust of his SUV to the interior of his car. First responders performed CPR and and restored a faint pulse. They then transported him by ambulance to the hospital where he died two days later. He wrote a note saying they refused to spend one more hour in jail for something he did not do. And he also wanted his kids to know they loved him. And uh, he had, he was still Traconis is still free to this day on a $2 million bond for murder conspiracy. And then Mahini is on house arrest for conspiracy as well. He was out on bond, but that was revoked when he tried to cut off his GPS monitoring bracelet. No trial date has been set. But here's another interesting fact about this Mahini character. He became estranged from his wife after being accused of spousal rape. His wife went to South Windsor Police and told authorities that she feared Fotis and Mahini were working together to kill her. After Jennifer disappeared, a shallow grave was discovered at a secluded property that Mahini owned, filled with two bags of lime and a blue tarp. Authorities and a sniffer dog discovered the grave in August 2019, but no body was found and said items were found to have been removed. I wonder if he helped Fotis. But if we remember, though, Fotis was the only one on the bike. There was no, remember he approached the house on a bike. So I don't, I just, the way I believe it went down is I believe that Fotis killed her by himself and that Jennifer helped the cleanup and then the Mahini guy helped provide an alibi, which later just fell apart. And they may have tried to kill his wife. The lawyer's wife had it not been so stupid that she got caught, but yeah, the girlfriend must have had an idea that that he was suicidal for her to immediately call. Yeah, and you know it's an interesting situation. Um, and and I think we were talking about this on the Brian Koberger case last night, where uh, no, it was a female that killed. Oh, what was the case? Um, let me look here. Corey Richens, the one that wrote the grieving book. And you asked me if I thought she'd commit suicide. And I said, no, and I don't think she will. And it seems to be men, men that are narcissistic and psychopathic, like him, Israel keys, et cetera. They'll kill themselves because they want to control the narrative. They care about what the public thinks of them. And, you know, like the guy that shot up all those people in Maine, killed himself. So, you know, it's, it's, it maybe is more of a male thing. I'm wondering than it is of a female psychopath to kill themselves and to control the narrative. Cause you don't hardly hear of that happening with the females. Too. Yeah. So, so what are y'all's thoughts? I mean, 
Um, it seemed like she was trying to do what she could to stay safe. She got away. She didn't let them in the house. She made sure the doors were locked. Um, do you think that he killed her on his own or that Traconis was there? Like, what are your thoughts on the whole uh, case? I think he definitely killed him on his own. I think that the lawyer friend definitely helped more than just an alibi, though, yeah. especially if they found a shallow grave on his property and then his wife's accusations. I don't know, honestly, aside from like maybe some um, self-defense courses, some um, you know, getting your gun license and and um, uh, practice. I really don't know that it would have ended any other way, though. I know, but I think the girlfriend did help clean up. Mm-hmm. I do too. And, uh, and I look at it. He's dead. Yeah, he's going to go to trial. And then he already had another girlfriend. I mean, and why did they split up? So that's where I'm not sure. Because, like, okay, is it possible that he asked her to lie and give him an alibi and convinced her that he was innocent? Is it possible that she was riding around with him and didn't know what he was up to because she's on her phone? And then when they're arrested, she's like, hold up. And then she splits with him. He gets another girlfriend. I think she's a poop bird because she was dating and having an affair with a married man. But I'm not sure she was aware. I'm probably more inclined that she was. But I could definitely have reasonable doubt if it ever went to court. See, I couldn't. I mean, you'd have to be blind not to see it. Well, we've seen that before. His wife's missing. No, we've seen that before. BTK's wife didn't think he was guilty. Well, nobody thinks they're guilty, but... Putting bags, you're going around putting bags. If, if, I mean, you, you had to know something was up. The wife's missing. You're going around throwing trash cans. Uh, he could have so, said it was from his construction job. Yeah, but yeah. the wife is missing. And then he comes to her and says, Hey, I need you to be my alibi, knowing that his wife right. was missing. I could no, see him letting her know that the cops are going to look at him first and that she knows he didn't do it. That's not the kind of person he is. Getting rid of bags, you're a construction guy. You have construction dumpsters. I mean, someone would, I mean, you got to know. You're going to trash can to trash can. Your wife's missing. You have a construction company. Go to the dumpster. But at the same time, Sherry's point about you know, believing he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, then all of a sudden you're arrested and they split up whenever after that. That's a good point. But then you're in the car. He has a construction company. What really do you think he's thrown away? Construction stuff? Yeah. No, that doesn't even make sense to me. It does to me. Yeah, I'm not sure. If she would have stayed with him, that would have probably made me more inclined to think that she was involved. The fact that she did not stay with him though, makes me wonder if she figured out, wait a minute, I think he did this and she got away. Or he did to her what he did to Jennifer um, was blatant about having an affair. And true. And 
he may not have been the top to put up with it. And you never know. She was over her head, had a daughter. Just yeah. The only way we're ever going to know her involvement is if she ever fesses up, and then I'd have to make sure she's not lying by looking at the the signals. She probably wouldn't fess up anyway because, I mean, she'll go to jail. She's probably going to go to jail anyway. I think they actually let her off. Let me see. I thought she no still way. had the $2 million bond. Yeah. I um I thought, I thought so too, but I might have seen something oh, okay. later. Um, oh, nope. For, let's see. So this was October 11th. Four jury seats filled for the Michelle Traconis trial in the Jennifer Delos case. Yeah. They're, okay. they're, um, they're going forward. When did you say that was? October 11th. Oh, dang. Oh. Yeah, they're going to keep going. All I right. I think they should. Huh? I think they should. Oh, absolutely. It'll be good. It'll be interesting to see what evidence they have. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Probably stuff you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's time. I already know mine. Are you sure? Uh-uh. I know yours. Are sure? I know hers. Okay. Be smart. Be rude. And don't be a victim. Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? Ah!